welcome to Humans of Authenticity, and thank you for choosing my podcast. My name is Lily, and I'll be your host. I'm a Vietnamese Australian living in the US, so you'll hear a lot of different accents in my podcast series. Designed as a blank canvas to weave together a rich tapestry of human experiences and identity, Humans of Authenticity will share many heartfelt conversations with my guests on their stories and how they embrace their authenticity in own forms. And we'll hold firm to who we are, we will be celebrated and liberated. However, the journey towards expressing ourselves authentically often encounters various obstacles. I wonder why. Authenticity will be a buzzword unless we pause and reflect on what it means for us, for individuals like you and me. Join me in these conversations, peel back all the layers and see how authenticity shines through. In each episode, my guests will choose a keyword from a selection of 12, which will be used as the theme of the conversation. These keywords change frequently, so you will only hear the same keyword once. Enjoy the episode today. Thank you, Monica, for making yourself available for this conversation. Let's start with your story. Can you share with us three things you'd like us to know about you? Well, thank you so much for having me here, V. Things about me. One is I identify as a woman, a strong one at that. And if you ask people who are closest to me, they will tell you that I am introverted. Crowds overwhelm me. So you can just imagine how Atlanta was. The other part of my identity that I hold very strongly to is that I'm Indian American. I grew up in India. I was born and raised there, came here for graduate school. And now I have stayed here for as many years as I have lived in India. So I call both places home. I have family in both places. And I think at this point, I have roots in one part of the world, and I have grown and spread my wings in another part of the world. So I can't erase either country from my identity. Another thing that strongly defines who I am is that I'm a mom. I'm a mom to a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. They will be very quick to correct me and say they are five and a half and seven and a half. I've been a mom almost eight years, and it has redefined my outlook and my perspectives. It has grounded me. It has reshaped me in many ways. And very importantly, it has helped me identify what my priorities are and what my goals are. Parenting has in many ways strengthened my leadership skills. It's also taught me what I'm willing to give up for my goals and what are the unchangeables as I work towards my goals. Thank you. There are so many elements I want to unpack in your three items. I'm particularly drawn to your last comment, being a mom of a five and a half and seven and a half. And you mentioned that that redefined your outlook, reshaping your leadership style. Can you describe the differences for me? Absolutely. I have two kids who are very different. They couldn't be 
more unlike each other. My seven-year-old is the most laid-back human being you have ever met in your life. He is the most zen person I have ever encountered. He's laid-back. He's chill. He's everything that I'm not. And then I have a five-year-old who is a mirror image of me in every possible way. She's a mini me with straight hair. If you haven't met me in person, I have a head full of curls and she has none. They have both challenged me in different ways. My son has encouraged me to slow down, reflect, and walk alongside. He's a thinker. He wants to know more. He questions the whys of how the world works. He's challenged me to bring that to my workspace as a leader and really think about what it means to slow down and be more intentional in engagement with people. My daughter, on the other hand, holds a mirror to me to tell me what I am like when unchained and liberated to be my authentic self. She really does hold a mirror up to me. Things that I find that I am engaged in conflict with her, I realize are conflicts because she is so much like me. She has uh, really challenged me to be very introspective. She's also taught me what it is to push boundaries and take risks. My daughter does not know what a boundary is. Um, she redefines boundaries in everything. My son, on the other hand, plays by the rules. So I, I look at both my kids and I've learned how to play well by the rules, but how can you bend the rules without breaking them? So you are allowing yourself to take risks. You're allowing yourself to challenge yourself and go beyond what you thought was safe and doable. I have been able to bring all of those when I brainstorm with my team when I'm thinking through projects. How can I bend the rules and push boundaries and take risks and yet think deeply and feel deeply and slow down while I'm engaged in decision making? I love this. Just a reflection. I appreciate uh, similar sentiments when I talk with my mom about the impact of, of children's on parents making me emotional right now. I'm really drawn to one of the elements you mentioned about your daughter and how she a mini you. And then you say that experience liberated your authentic self. Can you describe how that looked like? Can you give us a specific moment that you realized that you were liberated? You know, there's so much vulnerability that accompanies authenticity, all right? You have to be able to love yourself, know yourself fully, and be brave enough to share that version of you to people around you. There's an element of trust that comes in place. The people closest to you see your most authentic self 100% of the time. She was very little. I would say she just started talking. I mentioned earlier, I have a head full of curls. I would never be in a work environment or a business environment with my curls. I would never step out of the house. You would always find me with my hair perfectly straight, beautifully done. And she watched me. She was very little. She was a toddler. And she watched me straightening my hair one day and asked me why I did it. I told her I liked my hair straight. And she 
asked me if I didn't like it curly. It made me pause because to me, it wasn't a matter of whether I liked my hair curly. It was about what I was willing to show out to people around me. It was the version of myself I was willing to portray. And in my head, living up to the ideal of a woman in a workplace had straight hair if she had to show that she was accomplished and going for anything, which was the most ridiculous assumption. Uh, now looking back, but at that time, it refined my thinking, right? It was one more way I could prove and show the world that I was moving up. I was meeting requirements. I was being this corporate leader and I was trying to fit in in so many ways. And fitting in just goes against the grain of being who you are in terms of expressing your authentic self. So when she challenged me then, and I don't think she intended to, it made me pause. It took me a while. There was a period of transition, but I could not honestly answer to myself that I was straightening my hair because I liked it. I couldn't look in the mirror and say that to myself. I was doing my hair straight to fit in. Very simple, but very powerful moment of redefining whom I was trying to please in an effort to quote unquote fit in. She does that very often. And when you see kids mirror your words, your emotions in their lives, and, and as they apply it to their lives, it makes you step back and think about the messages you're communicating to people around you, not just your children, right? What are we talking about in terms of whom we allow into our lives? Whom are we engaging with? How are we treating people around us? Children watch us when we least expect them to. So they constantly challenge you on the discrepancies between what you ask them to do versus what you are doing. That's one of many ways my children challenge me every day. Hey, Asa Kippa with Full of Wisdom. I want to go back to that moment when she asked you that question. If you think back to that moment, that experience, what feeling or emotion went through your mind at a time? You know, honestly, at that time, it was unsettling. It was something that stuck with me. What unsettled me was the fact that I couldn't be honest with myself when I answered that. And if I couldn't be honest with myself, I couldn't be honest with people I cared about. It wasn't true to my life's mission, to my identity. That was it. It challenged me to be honest with myself and make sure I counted myself in the equation when I made a decision. I love how you reflect on this experience. I really appreciate that. Let's get to our keyword of the day today. I gave you a list of 12 keywords. Which one do you select? I selected choice. What does that word mean for you? I think at every stage of our lives, literally from the smallest details to the biggest ones, we're given a choice. Every decision we make is a conscious choice as to how we want to spend our time and our energies. And importantly, in the context of this conversation, being your authentic self is a choice that you make, right? How much of your authenticity you're willing to reveal to the people around you, how far you're willing to go to be authentic. I would venture to say, I don't know that I'm 100% authentic 
at work or outside of people in my trusted inner circle, but that it is one that I aspire to and one that I strongly encourage my team to as uh, be as well. It's also something that we hold each other accountable for on our teams. We give it each other space to do that. We want it to be an intentional choice to engage in ways that are really true to ourselves and that draw our biggest strengths because that's when we can be our best selves both at home and outside. You mentioned making an intentional choice to engage with the people around us. Can you give me a specific example? Absolutely. One of the things that defines my cultural identity is, and I know definitely in many Asian cultures, that element of conformity. There are rules, social rules, expectations that you're expected to align with. You are taught to think a certain way. For me, moving to the United States, one of the biggest blessings that have come with that is being okay to think for myself and not having to align. For me to start learning to non-conform to what is expected of me was to be very intentional about people I meet and who I surround myself with. What conversations am I engaging in? Are they challenging me to rethink my assumptions? The more sure I am of something, the more I make the choice to talk to people who are in dis direct disagreement with it. And I will admit, I don't always come back with my mind completely changed or even somewhat changed sometimes, but it helps me engage with people more meaningfully because I've made the choice to see things from their perspective. I don't need to agree with them to expand my horizons, but I need to understand people. My entire work and my work identity revolves around communication and giving a voice to people whose identities and whose voices are typically suppressed or not heard loudly. So to me, that is a very intentional move to inform my understanding, making sure that people who are especially going against the grain of popular opinion are given a space to express themselves. I make the choice to engage with them just so I can make sure that what I am thinking and believing is truly what I am thinking for myself and its conclusions that I have drawn for myself. I want to go a bit more specific. You mentioned the intentional choice that you make help you to engage with people more meaningfully. So think back in the last few weeks, mm -hmm. when was the last time that you have that meaningful connection with someone and what happened during that interaction? Absolutely. I'm part of the kids' school parent-teacher association. I was drafted into serving as part of the association. I've been a part of the group for a couple of years. I've been very much on the fringes. People assign me a task, I do it. I check the box, I'm done. Very early on in the school year, I met with this woman who is one of the leaders in the association. She and I have never really worked the same way in terms of our work styles. And we've never rallied around the same issues, but I accept her leadership. She's in charge. I kind of, again, check the box and keep moving. Um, but as I watched her, I think what came through was despite our different work styles, was her absolute commitment to what she was doing and the role she was playing. And it was one that I 
upon self-reflection realized that I completely entirely lacked to the role I was holding because again, I was drafted. I checked a box. I did the job. Um, so I reached out to her because I genuinely wanted to know what was driving her enthusiasm. Most parents on the Parent Teacher Association board were drafted to do what they do. And she walked me through how much she believes we, we as parents add to the quality of lives and education of our children by simply being there for our teachers and for the community and for our children. And it was intriguing. I did not grow up in America. I did not realize the value of parent engagement in public schools and how much that shaped the experience of schools and teachers. She really did showcase the value of what I was doing. It made me find pride in how I was delivering. It was not about doing the job. It was about whose lives I was enriching and the purpose and the vision behind it. Interestingly, in a follow-up conversation with one of my kids' teachers who's new to the um, building, she mentioned that she was blown away by the amount of support that the teachers receive from the PTA in terms of both monetary support, but really the fact that the PTA reaches out and asks, how can I help you? What do you need for your classroom? Are there spaces we can step in? Do you need volunteers? She has never experienced that in her previous schools. So I realized that something that I perceived as a duty was added so much value to people's lives. And it was direct engagement with this woman on the PTA that really put it in perspective for me. That's such a great example. What I learned from that is sometimes we forget um, how much impact we make to the network around us until someone really pointed out to us and lay it out from a different perspective. Um, and whenever I hear about such example, it gives me so much gratitude for what we encounter in the daily life, mm -hmm. even though sometimes we not realize how much it means, but there are substance, there definitely are values to that. Absolutely. Going back to choice as the theme for today's conversation, what was the best choice you made in your life until today? I mean, my husband would venture to say it was marrying him. But while I admit that is up there, <laughs> one of the best choices, I would say the top one, was making the choice to leave everything that was familiar back home and getting on a plane to come to the United States. I was 21. I had never left the country before that. And I was coming here for grad school. I knew my aunt's family who were going to be within driving distance of grad school. But other than that, I knew nobody. It was, it was not a choice that came without hiccups. It cost me a lot to make that choice, but it opened opportunities I met my husband because I was here. I have an amazing family and support system here. It's also a choice that I reflect on every day because I am very far from my dad who still lives in India. Well, I speak to daily, but it's not 
quite the same as being able to see him in person. It's also a choice that struck me very hard. I lost my mom about a dozen years ago. She passed away from lung cancer. She was very young. She was 54 when she passed away. The weight of the choice I had made really impacted me as I was grieving her loss because it always came down to, well, I should have been there more for her in person. Every choice you make is not an absolute. There are always pros and cons. There are always merits. Uh, there's immediate impact. There's also long-term impact of our choices. Despite the fact that I have the choice to leave the home I've known for the first 21 years of my life has had some pretty weighty impacts on my life in the next 21. I don't think it's a choice I regret. It's made me who I am. It's given me the set of experiences and the space to become who I am today. Uh, and it's also given me the opportunity to grow into who I will be over the rest of my life. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and sorry to hear about your mom. The experience of letting home to a new country where we know no one's is a very unique experience for each individual. Mm -hmm. Do you still remember the first day that you came to the U.S.? Yes, it was August 18th, exactly 20 years ago. So, yeah, it, it's been a while. Uh, Can you describe that day for me? What came through your mind when you landed to this country? What uh, emotions you had or feeling you had at the time? I always say, you don't know what you don't know until you walk into it. You get off the plane and it was amazing to realize that, yes, there were all of these things that you worked towards and your hard work paid off and you're here. And then on the flip side, you look around and you realize there's hardly anyone who looks like you. There's certainly no one who speaks like you. My um, accent is a mix of so many identities that I don't sound Indian. I don't sound American. I'm a mix of something in between as the rest of my life is. You don't realize until you get here, that you don't truly fit in the way you imagined you would fit in, right? There were people you had made contacts with, there was family that received me, but it still wasn't the same. The biggest emotion that overwhelmed me was the feeling that I was different and that I somehow stood out. And I don't know how much of it was factual versus how much of it was me being overwhelmed by being in a new culture. I'm part of a profession that is 92% white. I came to grad school. I was the only person of color in my graduate program. I was the first international student in my graduate program, and my program had been in existence for about 100 years. So I stood out in many ways, but there were people who took it upon themselves to make sure that I felt included. I used to walk from the international students housing to the university, which was about a good 20 minute walk on a good day. We used to have late evening classes. There were women who would drive me home every night because they didn't want me to walk alone in the dark. There were people who cooked for me. There were people who invited me to family gatherings. They were people who looked at me like I was an alien from outer space. We will not talk about them, but, you know, they made me realize that I was 
more similar to them than I was different. And that meant the world to me then. And I don't think they realize how impactful their actions were. The people who just truly rallied around me, even though they didn't know me, I was a complete stranger and I would honestly be in their lives for two years. But they went above and beyond to make sure that feeling of being overwhelmed by the differences wasn't what marked my American experience when I came. Thank you for sharing that story. I want to bring this back to the theme of humans of authenticity. What I learned from that is you have such a great support network as a reflection um, from my own experience. Once we are able to build that support network, that's how we can be a lot more comfortable and that's how we can express ourselves and our true authentic self in that safe, supportive network, regardless of such a different environments out there that we are stepping into. Absolutely. You're never going to live your life free of biases from other people. We're always going to be judged. No one is going to fit in and gain the popular vote 100% of the time. If I'm going to be judged, I might as well be judged for being who I am instead of having to be judged for what I'm trying to be, which is not myself. That's where I really appreciate the freedom that people have afforded in my life, both in the workspace as well as outside, where people have just encouraged and challenged me to just be who I am. And it's easier, it's less work to make that choice than to strive to be someone whom you are not. I love that. Did you ever feel scared at all during that experience? Where did you get the courage to go through all of that experience? Honestly, I can't pinpoint a certain incident that made me change. But at some point, very early on in my story of immigration to America, I just stopped caring about what people thought. I, I will admit, I'm not completely liberated from that, right? I mean, we, we all have that thing of, oh my gosh, what are people going to think of me? But I think I started caring more about the impact of who I am and what I do on people's lives than whether that is going to win the popular vote or not. It also then radically changed whom I was trying to impress or whom I was trying to partner with. Um, and just the recognition that I am not going to be the solution for everything for all people. Uh, I'm never going to please everybody. So at some point, I just think I stopped caring. It's a very hard thing to teach someone to do, as I am learning in my parenting journey. You can't tell kids, don't care what your friends think. It is something that you have to grow into and challenge yourself. And I think life knocks some sense into you as you get older and more mature. People around you, the support system you referenced, they can build you up. They can authenticate who you are. They can validate what you bring to the table. But you've got to believe that for yourself for you to make that switch, to be comfortable expressing who you are. I still like playing by the rules, but I think that my rules of engagement in the game have changed a bit. It takes a lot of courage to stop caring. 
I'll, I'll put it out. And that imposter syndrome is always here, that mm-hmm. umbrella around us. So I applaud you for how fearless you've been describing the experience. And thank you for being so honest with me through these conversations. Now I want to flip the conversations. We talk a lot about the positive experience you have in the way you're making your choice. I want to go to the other spectrum of the conversations. Have you ever made a wrong choice? Oh, so many, so many. Whether that be simple things and what I decide to order at a restaurant, which comes back to bite me, or, you know, major life decisions that you think through and outcomes are not just exactly what you thought they might be. I struggle to think of choices I make as wrong or right choices. I think regardless of what the outcome might be, the outcome might be what I expected or want or what I don't want. So it's my expected or unexpected outcome of my choice, but I don't know that my choice in and of itself is an absolute right or wrong, or at least that's how I perceive it, because that guides a lot of my decision-making, right? The moment you start fearing wrong choices, it's very hard to take risks and push boundaries. You make calculated choices, you look at all the things that have to inform your decision, and then you make a choice and you stand by the choice you make. Outcomes may be completely disastrous, you own it, because you have thought it through. And that's how I approach decision-making at work as well. I've gathered all of the information. I know there are inherent risks. Some risks are bigger than others, and but I'm still gonna own it. I own the choice I make, regardless of what the outcome is. I'll tell you a, a choice I made at work that didn't quite play out the way we anticipated. We rebranded a conference that we have hosted for about 20 years. It it was time to do something different with it. It wasn't financially sustainable. It wasn't meeting its mark. It had good member engagement though. So we decided to rebrand it. We went through work with a consultant. We gathered consensus around what it should be. And I came up with this novel idea that the leadership thought was worth investing in. We owned it, we built our branding around it, and then came, we were going to launch the conference in 2020. We held back and we're going to do it in 2021. And we said, okay, we'll play it safe. Let's just do something virtual. Let's not go big. It's not what I wanted, but I understand the world was in a different place in 2021. And then the idea was that we would co-host this conference with healthcare centers of excellence across the countries. The downside of that was COVID was still going strong in healthcare centers of excellence around the country. So it's very hard to enter a hospital system and say, we're bringing a conference to you. We decided to weigh the pros and cons and still go live in person in 2020 in Boston. I will tell you, we had maybe four people register for that conference because we were aiming to bring together a bunch of healthcare workers. The theme of it was COVID and we were hosting it at a hospital. There were so many things wrong about that picture now that I reflect on it, but it wasn't the model that went wrong. It was the timing of what we were trying to launch. And I did not have the patience to wait until COVID 
was in the rearview mirror for the most part. It was not my solo decision, but it was a decision I strongly pushed for. We launched it, four people decided to come. We decided to actually cancel the event, which was crushing. And we had to take a step back, reflect, and we launched it as an in-person event in 2023. We sold out in two weeks. So it helped me realize that it was not about the concept I had pitched. It was not about the event. It was about the timing. And so was it a bad choice to pull the trigger to launch the event in 2022? I think it was a choice that was made based on all our calculated data. It was absolutely horrible timing. And I own the outcome of it. We still flipped it to virtual. We still made money in the programming. Not my best decision, not my finest moment. So it's a matter of, was the choice appropriate? I'm still glad we made the choice. We made a lot of adjustments in 2023 based on lessons learned in 22. So I'm grateful for that. But timing was absolutely terrible. What I love about this is that you describe your thought process when making the decisions. And I think we glorified the word right and wrong so much that in a decision-making context, this might not be the most appropriate way to look at it. Um, and I also love how you bring the outcomes into the decision-making process. And most often we tend to think about the consequences and we are between choices. But if we think about outcomes, it flipped the perspective and it gives us more information to consider between options. This is really cool. So we've done a lot about choices. I want to go back to the start of our conversations when you say that you are an introverted person. Being an introverted myself, I want to unpack that. Can you describe for me what it means for an introvert person in a typical workplace environment? I'll tell you how introversion defines me. And I think that'll lead to a conversation about how it defines me in the workplace. I can engage in one-on-one -on -one or small group conversations well and meaningfully, but I can't work a room to save my life. I want to shrink and disappear if you put me in large social situations. And clearly, you know, Delp is pushing me to step outside of my comfort zone there. I can stand on a stage and give a talk and be absolutely confident. I have no problems with that. I can't work large social situations. That's where uh, my social energy is drained. I need quiet to be able to recharge myself. Being an introvert has afforded me a lot of strengths. I can listen really well. I can comfortably draw out information from the quieter people in the room. I can engage with people. I'm pretty intuitive about emotions and where conversations are landing with people. So those help me very much um, in being a good leader, a good champion for people on my team. In my clinical world, when I actively practiced as a speech-language pathologist, it really helped me connect with people who weren't actively speaking, participating by verbal communication. 
in the big world out there. I chose a career that I loved because I had one-on-one connections. I engaged with families. I engaged with people, helped them get a voice, loved doing it. I struggle with networking sessions. I struggle with going to strangers to strike up conversations. But again, I think a program like DELP shows me what I'm capable of when I'm pushed outside my comfort zone. I still need to come back to my hotel room and have eight hours of complete silence. I don't even turn on the TV, but it also shows me that I can engage. And more importantly, I can learn and grow from experiences that I engage in when I'm pushing my boundaries that I established for myself. The other very important lesson that I've learned in recent years is being an introvert is not drawing a boundary around me. Being an introvert is defines how I work and how I engage with people, but that doesn't limit what I can and can't. Thank you. I love how you define boundaries as part of introversions. Let's put on your leadership cap. What can you do as a leader to create an environment where introvert people can thrive? I think one of the ways to do that is being very intentional about creating safe spaces across the board. It's not about who participates in that group think session that you have. It's not about who's the loudest voice when you're brainstorming. It's providing people spaces and ways to engage in outside of the traditional raise your hand, who has the loudest voice, give people time to think, time to react, ask for feedback in space in ways that is not just a one-on-one conversation or not in just a group environment. You introduce a concept, let people reflect. There are so many ways we want to think about and accommodate diversity of thought and personalities. The work starts day one when you step into the role of that leader. You want to create spaces where people are okay speaking up or saying what they think. It's very hard to pull that out at just a meeting if you haven't laid the foundation in smaller instances, if you haven't built trust with that person. The point is to make sure everyone's voice is heard, regardless of how they're communicating or in what environment they choose to engage. Rarely do I ask for immediate reactions to ideas or give me feedback now or let's brainstorm when I haven't given any context. I want people to have taken the time and energy to be able to provide feedback or engage on their own terms and make sure we build deadlines around that. I love this. Thank you. We spent the last 20 minutes or so looking back. Mm -hmm. I want us to shift gear and looking forward. What's next for you in the next 12 months? Oh, next 12 months, we're close to the end of 2023, even though it's only middle of September, but it feels like the end of 2023. Through 2024, a personal challenge for me is to grow in patience and being very intentional about pacing myself, how I think and what I do. The quickest way is not always the best way. I'm driven a lot by efficiency. So for me to take the time and space to be intentional and slow down is is a challenge. That's one personal goal for me. 
I want to be able to grow in skill sets that are new and different. That is finding new projects that are particularly challenging to engage in. And that pushes me and my organization in to take risks in how we engage with members. We're a large membership organization. We have over 225,000 members. We are a staff of over 300. So in a large space, how do we make our engagements more personal to our members and to staff? I want us to be able to take a few more risks in how we engage with people. That's a big area of focus for me. How can I meaningfully push boundaries to advance my organization's mission? Also, within the next 12 months, a goal is to get my CAE. It's one that's been top of mind. I need to dig in and do it. Be, speaking of being intentional, create the time and space to work on it. That's another goal for me. Going back to slowing down, I want to take the time to invest in myself and be mindful of where I am spending my energy and what I'm saying yes to. I want to get better at taking care of myself, which I haven't done for a very long time. So investing in myself, in self-care and finding space to do things on my own as a true introvert, being okay with investing in myself is where I want to live. Um, I really love how you say you allow yourself to be okay to invest in yourself. We often forget about us in the busyness of life. So I love hearing this and I love that you are committed to this. Um, I've written it down. If I don't write it down, it doesn't happen. If you need an accountability partner here, I'll be with you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Go back to your selected word choice. How does choice come into this next 12 months picture that you have described? I think it is the choice to invest my time and efforts in what I have prioritized for myself, whether that be self-care, whether that be CAE, whether that be projects I engage in at work. It's making the choice to be intentional and invest in myself, recognizing that I can't do it all and that I'm going to have to draw boundaries. I'm going to have to say no. There are things that I currently prioritize in some ways pretend to prioritize that need to go on the back burner if I really want to push myself towards some of these goals because I know that I have to create time to prep for the CAE to take time out for myself to think about new and exciting projects at work but if I don't make that choice no one else is going to create that time and space for me there are two things that I love about this one I love that you are giving yourself grace through choices that you are making on the same token you are using your choice as way to make yourself accountable to achieve that picture this is exciting well yeah it's funny you say that because as a team this year at work we had defined team priorities that we laid out for 2023 and for the first time in my five years of leading this team I was very comfortable drawing a very firm boundary around it and saying, we're not going to do anything outside of this. Yes, there are things that come up we need to address that are urgent and important for the association, but where we spend our time as a team 
and what we're prioritizing our content creation and messaging around should fall within these. These are truly where our priorities lie. I am proud to say that my team's been exceptional at doing that and also holding each other uh, accountable for doing that. It's when we come up with an idea and someone says that's brilliant and the next person says, yes, it is, but is it something we need to do now? And how does that inform our priorities? Again, it's built on trust that you're not going to be that annoying dissenter in the crowd when someone comes up with an idea, but truly being an accountability partner. And in many ways, we need to hold ourselves accountable for the same thing in life, knowing that you can't have everything be a priority. Something's got to take the back seat. And it's a season in life. Things move. Priorities don't stay the same and allowing yourself to be okay with that. 100% agree with you. We are getting to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for um, spending the time with me. I hope you enjoy the conversations as much as I do. I have one last question. If you are going on a dream vacation tomorrow, what is the one item you would take with you? Oh, my phone. As terrible as that sounds, that my phone. <laughs> I did live without my phone on my recent vacation, mainly because I dropped it in a different country. And let me tell you, finding a replacement iPhone in a different country is not as easy as it sounds. I lived phone free for a week. It was not my choice. And I never want to do that again. Isn't that a chance for you to detox all of your technique? No, you know what? It made me very anxious. If you know me well, you know that I'm completely directionally impaired and I can't find my way around anywhere for the life of me. So being in a completely different country without my Google Maps just about broke me. I felt really old school pulling out paper maps and navigating new cities and taking the subway in different countries. But I told myself that I was very brave for doing it. Um, I never want to live that experience again. So I will take my phone in very solid phone cases and hold on to it for dear life anytime I travel. I love this. That's it for today's episode. Drop your thoughts in the comment section. I'd love to hear your take on the chosen keyword. Have a lovely time and thank you again for spending time with humans of authenticity. Until next time.